1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Now, as we do once a month, we're going to have a very special one-hour Naked Science question and answer show. Hello, my name's Chris Smith, and here to help me to answer all of your questions this hour, we have... Dave Ansell.
0: Good evening. And Derek Thorne. Hello, good evening. And we've also got a very special kitchen science this evening, which actually has nothing to do with kitchens and everything to do with me. Because what I'd like you to do tonight is, listening to my voice, I'd like you to guess what my height and my age is. There's actually some research that has been done to see how well people can do this, given someone's voice and listening to it. And it turns out people do it very well. So you, as a listener, see if you can do the same. Do call us or email in 08459 25 2000, chris at the com. And
3: this week we've got various news for
0: you. We've got how Curry could be staving off Alzheimer's,
1: um, PCs saving the world and singing sand dunes. And if that's not enough for you, we'll also be finding out the definitive experimental answer to exactly how much flying a flag for the World Cup, just in case you're thinking of doing that again in the next four years' time, how much that's actually costing you, because Derek and Dave went out this week onto the roads around Cambridgeshire and made experimental measurements to find out. That's coming up in the next half an hour. But in the meantime, we do need your science questions to make tonight's show really fly. So call in now on 08459 2000. Send us a text on 07786 20 1960 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Uh, Here's an interesting discovery which was written up in the journal Nature by uh, Aberdeen researcher Min Zhao who's been looking at an age-old question of why electricity seems to make wounds heal up because whilst we've known for a long time that applying electricity to a bit of uh, a wounded area on the skin seems to make wounds close faster, no one actually knew whether it was genuinely true or indeed whether it really worked. So what these researchers did was to measure exactly what was going on in a wound from an electric field point of view. And what they found was that in the base of a wound, there's an electric current that flows out of the middle of the wound towards the edges. And the skin cells at the edge of the wound can detect that electric field and they then flow and crawl and migrate down the electrical gradient, almost like a ball rolling down a hill, to find the bottom of the wound. And when they meet another cell coming the other way, they take root And stop. And that's how wounds know to heal up. And when the researchers reversed the electric current in a wound artificially, they found that instead of closing, the wounds opened up again. And there's a historical basis to this, because uh, somebody who we discussed on the programme about a month ago, uh, Dave was here, was uh, Mark Skousen, and he was talking about a great American scientist back from many, many years ago called Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the earliest electricians. And, in fact, he was always a big advocate of electrocuting people to make their wounds better. It's something the Americans have now taken to the extreme, I hasten to add, with their electric chairs and things. But, uh, no, it looks like if we can use electricity to heal wounds, we might be onto something. So is electricity basically just
3: telling the cells which way to go so they know where the hole is basically
1: yes they follow that gradient of Lots of plus going out to slightly less plus the further away from the wound you go and the cells follow that signal. And the researchers in Aberdeen have found two genes, one's called P10 and the other one's called PI3K gamma and those are essential for the process to happen and because they've now got a genetic basis for it, what they think uh, might be possible is not only to electrify people's wounds to make them heal quicker, but you could give drugs that would switch on or, or switch off those genes in the right way to speed up wound healing.
0: Is this, though, the, the, the kind of level of electric shock that they're giving people? Is that something that people can feel? You know, it doesn't sound very inviting.
1: No, but the good, the good news is, Derek, that the, the kind of currents that you're measuring here are absolutely tiny. It's not the kind of thing that you would need to run a television. It's a very, very small amount of current that uh, would be imperceptible, but at the level of a cell, it's very, very powerful.
0: Fantastic. All right, well, there's another story, actually, this week, which is all about this thing called volunteer computing. And the idea is that if you have a computer at home or at work, which is on for long periods of time, and which, basically, you might be doing something like word processing on it, but your computer isn't really busy, it's not using all of its processor power all the time, you can actually chip in with helping to solve really big problems that Bo-boom. are out here in the world at the moment. <laughs> Lovely pun, Derek, i had to say. And unintended, <laughs> I might add. But, no, basically, um, the idea is that, for example, malaria uh, spreads across Africa in very complex ways and scientists are trying to uh, design experiments and models that can kind of work out how that's going to happen but these programs are very very big things and really need a lot of computing power so what they do is they say to everyone who's on the internet who's got a computer that's hooked up to the web they say can you donate us a tiny bit of your processor power and then you can help us solve these problems and so if you want to get involved in volunteer computing you can take part in things like that there's also a little project to work out what drugs might work to uh, block the HIV virus doing uh, doing what it does and uh, there's also uh, some some programmes that are trying to solve chess problems if you're into, into into a bit more board games instead of diseases.
3: On a similar point of view, instead of trying to use wasted computing cycles, people are trying to use wasting head cycles, actually use people's brains for not doing very much. Yeah, they could make good use of yours, couldn't they? <laughs> Cheers, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, he's out in
1: a world of his own. They're anyway, to, sorry.
3: S- scientists on the Stardust mission, which was where they sent a space probe to the back of Comet Wild 2, and they collected some actual bits of the comet, um, some dust which came out of the back of the comet in something called aerogel. Um, and they're looking for something, not just the comet dust, they're actually looking for interstellar dust, so stuff which has come from other planets, other star, stars outside the solar system. Just breathe. Uh, and what they want, that way, if they could find some, they'd be able to better understand the stars, what's we were made in the first stuff that we've actually got from outside the solar system. The problem is they don't really know what they look like and they've got thousands and thousands of comet particles in there, and, and they can't write a computer programme to find the things. They reckon there's about 50 particles in all of the aerogel, and they'll have 700,000 big pictures to look at. So they can't write a computer programme to look at this. How big will the particles be? Uh, about a micron, so about a millionth of a metre across. So, so it's, it's about like
1: a thousandth of a millimetre, so It's literally a, it is a speck of dust. Isn't yeah, it, 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 they're they're, look, we're talking about real specks of dust here. And, and how are they going to do this? Well, the solution they've come up with is
3: take advantage of lots of bored people. So they've recruited 115,000 volunteers who they're specially trained to look at these particle tracks and find the unusual ones.
0: How on earth did they get that many people? I don't know. They just advertised and <laughs> there <were> enough <laughs> bored people out there who want to play. <laughs> well, I hope they're paying them. That's all I can say. But yeah, the thing is, Dave, you've, you've actually. I mean, I don't know whether you're volunteering your time on, on the dust spotting thing, but you, I gather you do have a volunteer computing thing on your computer. Well, maybe. You said earlier that you had the SETI programme on your computer, and this is uh, the most famous one. It's a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And so if you want, at home want to get involved in this, 5 million people around the world already have done. And uh, this is the idea that you can search the signals that are coming into a particular telescope, which is in Puerto Rico, and uh, you can see whether they show any signs of extraterrestrial life. So the race is on. 5 million people are doing it to find E.T.
1: Now, you've just heard Derek there and you've been listening to him as the star of kitchen science for the last almost 12 months. But tonight we're asking you, can you help us to repeat a famous science experiment, which is, what does someone look like just on the basis of their voice? We need your approximations, your estimations, your guesses, and anything goes, the funnier the better, actually, of what Derek looks like. Phone in now and tell us, and the person who is closest to his age, height and weight... We won't give you sex because that's a bit obvious. We'll win a prize, and tonight we have some great books. We've got some frisbees. We've got some hats. We've got some fantastic stuff to give away. If you would like to have a go at uh, have a go at Derek, have a go at estimating what Derek looks like. Oh eight four five is the phone number, or email Chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on oh seven seven eight six twenty. 1960 and it's the same numbers of course if you have any questions on anything for us this evening it's our naked science question and answer show anything goes we'll take any questions now i've got an interesting uh, piece here which is about the disease alzheimer's disease And, uh, of course, Alzheimer's disease is also known as senile dementia. It's something which about 20% of people over the age of 80 will succumb to. In other words, it's where the cognition or intellect declines with age. And scientists now know quite a bit about this. We know that there's a protein that builds up in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease called beta amyloid. And it's something your brain makes naturally. But for some reason, in some people, it accumulates to a very high level and then begins to cause problems. But not in everybody, because there's a piece of research from the National University of Singapore this week by a guy called Zee Ping Ng, who went and looked at over a thousand people from Asia and did a simple survey asking them how much curry they ate. And he then did a, what's called a mini-mental test on these people, which is just a very sensitive way of working out how well their brain's working. You ask people things like, what day of the week is it? Who's the Prime Minister? Who's the Queen? Simple, simple questions. They sound, it sounds silly, but actually it's very, very sensitive, because the minute someone's brain begins to not function quite as well as it should, they start to get simple questions like that wrong. Very staggering result, though, because what they found was that people who ate curry on a regular basis had about half the risk of developing signs of Alzheimer's disease compared with people that never ate curry. And even people who ate uh, at curry just every so, excuse me, every so often had a significant reduction in their risk of Alzheimer's disease. So why should this be? Well, they think it's down to turmeric, the orange stuff that you find a lot of in curry. And there's anecdotal evidence that in countries like India, uh, where people eat a lot of curry and they use a lot of turmeric, there are lower levels of Alzheimer's disease. So why should turmeric be important? Well, turmeric's got in it a chemical called curcumin. And curcumin is present in very small amounts, but it's an antioxidant. And what we think's going on in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease is that when nerve cells get put under stress, in other words, they're made to work a bit too hard, suddenly chemicals can build up that damage those cells, and antioxidants might stop that happening. And so that's why we think that there's this link to curcumin. And it's not just Alzheimer's disease, it seems to protect the other end of your body as well, because there's a piece of research published by a different group of researchers at the same time this week. Francis Giardiello and uh, colleagues at Johns Hopkins in the US have found that people who are at risk of getting bowel cancer, if they eat a diet which is rich in this this substance, curcumin from turmeric, and also another substance called quercetin, which is an antioxidant present in onions, they have a much lower risk of developing polyps. The... uh, growths in the intestine that can become cancerous. In a group of people who had already had an operation for a risk of bowel cancer, the number of polyps that they had shrank and the polyps themselves got a lot smaller, which is really encouraging.
0: Let's say, though, you eat really spicy food, I mean, all the time. Can it actually have any kind of detrimental effects on your health, like, you know, loads of chillies every day?
1: People have have asked me this a lot and I myself am very partial to chilli and I've never had any problems. If you look at the population of India and Bangladesh, uh, where chilli consumption is absolutely huge I mean you'd know having been there Derek I don't think there's any evidence of an, of an excessive amount of gastric ulceration but, but what is true is that people in those countries are much more likely to carry a simple bacterium in the stomach which is linked to people getting stomach ulcers which is called Helicobacter pylori so it's very hard to dissect the two things away from each other to see whether it's the chilli or the H. pylori, but in one study I do know of, scientists gave a group of volunteers some food to eat, and um, one one set of food was a spicy curry. The other food was non-spicy, but they spiked it with some aspirin, and we know aspirin makes your stomach sore. And they then had a look in people's stomach using uh, one of those endoscopes, and the aspirin made people's stomachs a bit swollen but the chilli didn't do anything, so that's encouraging, isn't it?
0: Fantastic. Well, I can testify that the uh, the amount of chilies eaten in Bangladesh are absolutely huge and very frightening to the likes of us.
1: Tis the Naked Scientists. It's Chris, Dave and Derek with you this week, and we're taking your science questions anything on anything. Just call in oh eight four five 2000, email chris at nakedscientist.com or text us on 07786 20 1960.
0: And also, we are looking for you to guess what my height and my age is as well, because this is an experiment that's been done over the last few years, and it turns out people are actually very good at using someone's voice to work out how tall and how old they are. So if you'd like to call us, or text in, or email what you think my height and age are, we'd be delighted, and I want to know whether you're going to be right.
1: We've heard from Jane, who's in Finningham, Derek, and she says you're 45 years old, and uh, you're 5 foot 8.
0: Oh, so how many yeah. points
1: does she get for that?
0: Well, I just kind of feel that if I start giving points now, people are going to get hot, you know, they're going to get a few clues about what I look like. Let's just keep it neutral and say that's a good guess, but not correct. Stripping down science.
4: Okay,
2: let's do it.
0: The Naked Scientists.
1: Now it is our last Naked Scientists of the summer because we're going to take about a month off and we'll be back at the beginning of September so this is our final trip to the States before we retire for this series to visit Bob Hershon and Chelsea Ward for this week's edition of Science Update. Today they're going to be looking at evolution amongst Darwin's finches, that's a kind of bird by the way and also finding out why pregnant women
2: get morning sickness. This week for the Naked Scientists, the staff here at Science Update go out on a limb here in the States by throwing our support behind the controversial theory that life on Earth evolved by means of natural selection, a theory first proposed by foreign biologist Charles Darwin. In this episode, we'll learn about brand new insights into evolution from the finches Darwin studied. But first, scientists have long wondered why pregnant women get morning sickness. After all, they need all the sustenance they can get, so losing their breakfast doesn't seem to be the best course of action. But Chelsea tells us there could be a good evolutionary reason for it.
5: When morning sickness strikes, pregnant women often ask, Why me? Well, they'll be happy to know that scientists at the University of Liverpool are working on an answer. By comparing 56 studies from 21 countries, they found that pregnancy sickness is more common in places with diets high in sugars, stimulants, vegetables, meat, milk, and eggs. Evolutionary psychologist Gillian Pepper says this may be the body's way of protecting the fetus from harm.
1: These were the foods that perhaps when man was evolving, were more likely
4: to contain pathogens, because if you don't have refrigeration, meat, milk, eggs very quickly could become infected or or go bad.
5: Women fared better in places with diets low in these foods and high in cereals and beans, but Pepper doesn't recommend that pregnant women change their diets. Much more research is needed on whether doing so would reduce sickness or even be healthy.
2: Thanks, Chelsea. Well, scientists have now reported seeing evolution in action in none other than Darwin's finches. Two decades ago, large ground finches moved to a Galapagos island where medium ground finches lived. The problem was the large finches ate the same seeds as the medium finches, and they did it faster with their bigger beaks. So scientists predicted that the medium finches' beaks would evolve to take advantage of smaller seeds. Princeton University evolutionary biologist Peter Grant says that happened during a drought two years ago.
6: The um, recent immigrant species um, had almost eaten the supply of
4: food for themselves, so they almost went extinct. The resident species, the species that
6: was there before the new species arrived, underwent this uh, large shift towards small size in uh, beaks.
2: He says this adds to the evidence that competition between species can lead to evolutionary changes.
5: I'm Chelsea Wald.
2: And I'm Bob Hirshon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, Bob. The Science
1: Update crew will be back with us again on the Naked Scientists in September. But if you'd like more science news in the meantime, you can always go and check out their website, which is www.scienceupdate.com. This is Chris, Dave and Eric as the Naked Scientists and we're taking your science questions. Shortly we'll be talking to David, who's actually in the Shetlands about supernovas. If you want to phone in 08459 25 2000, send us an email at chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 20 1960. The Naked Scientists supported by The Welcome Trust. David is on the line. Hello, David. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. Thank you. What would you like to talk about?
7: Uh, well, before I say it, can I just say that I think your show is absolutely fantastic.
1: What can I say I think it's absolutely fantastic. You phoned in from the Shetland Islands.
7: Yes, in the farthest reaches of Britain.
1: <laughs> so presumably you're listening on the internet? I am indeed, yes. OK, well, we've never had anyone phone in from the Shetland Islands, so you're a first in that respect.
7: Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that.
1: What did you want to talk about?
7: Uh, my question is, if you have a star, say like the sun, which is about approximately 860,000 miles across, and it explodes like a supernova, would coming from matter, coming from, this, coming from it travel faster than
3: the speed of light well first thing is to reassure everyone at home the sun's probably too small to actually turn into a supernova and explode um it's more likely to turn into a red giant and sort of fluff up about the site which will kill us all anyway but mm. slightly less violently um but fundamentally no nothing can go faster than the speed of light uh, in a supernova things would get very very close and be incredibly energetic mm. but according to einstein you just can't get faster than the speed of light
1: Things can give the impression of going faster than the speed of light, which is, uh, there was a lovely analogy that was put to me, David, by someone around Christmas time when we were discussing something about the Star of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And he's using a technique where they're looking for the, it's almost like the echo of a light. And what they've done, well, the analogy is, if you were to shine a torch beam at the wall and then move your hand across at the speed of light, the end of the beam would actually sweep out a distance greater than the speed of light could have travelled in that time if it was travelling from A to B, because it's on the end of a long beam of light, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So you can fool someone into thinking something's going faster than the speed of light, but as far as we know, as Dave said, and Einstein says, because Dave being as good as Einstein, of course, (laughs) then... (laughs) <laughs> no, there's no way something can go faster than the speed of light. But th- to, to go on, to build on a point that Dave made, there's a really nice paper this week in the journal Nature, and what they've done is, it's a chap at um, the University of Leicester, uh, Matt Burley, and his mm-hmm. colleagues. Everyone thought that when a star, a bit like our sun, got to the end of its life and and swelled up, as Dave says, and, and the reason stars swell up is because at the moment our sun is burning hydrogen and helium, principally hydrogen, and when it runs out of hydrogen, it begins to burn other things, and it loses the compact structure it's got and becomes very, very large, and it swells up to engulf all the inner planets, the rocky worlds like our one. And everyone thought that meant it was curtains for those planets. But these guys at Leicester this week have spotted a faraway star which has got a very big planet, a bit like Jupiter, or a little bit bigger, in orbit around the star, and it couldn't have got there afterwards. It must have actually persisted in that position when the star swelled up to become one of these red giants and then shrunk down to become a dwarf afterwards. So it looks like planets can survive being cooked in that way. But that's kind of off the topic, but uh, I just thought you'd like to know that.
7: Can I, can I ask a question that's very similar, you know, that's in relation to it? Yeah. Um, you know about uh, gamma bursts and, from... Well, believed to be from the furthest depths of the universe,
1: a gamma ray burst.
7: Yeah, wouldn't mm. wouldn't they burst be travelling fast than the speed
1: of light? Well, no, because a gamma ray is a form of light. It's electromagnetic radiation. So, it, light that we can see mm. is just one collection of frequencies or wavelengths of light. Mm. Gamma rays are another very short wavelength radiation. X rays are a little bit longer wavelength radiation than that. A bit further than that, you get to ultraviolet, then infra- then then visible light, and then you're into infrared, mm. and then microwaves and radio waves, and so on. Yeah,
7: yeah. I see. Well, fair enough. That's that's uh, answering my question, I
1: suppose. Quick <laughs> go at the quiz there. Yeah. Yes, please. Okay. Bill Gates, the mastermind behind the computer company Microsoft, makes about fifty-five dollars a minute. Is that fact or fiction?
0: Fiction. Yes, indeed, you're right. He makes $55 a second and is worth an estimated $31 billion. Very rich guy, indeed.
1: Mm. Well done, David. Next question. Uh, In Britain, we consume over 3,000 tonnes of caffeine every single year, and that's not just me.
7: 3,000 tonnes.
1: That's just some tea. Um, Is
7: that true? I would say... um, I would say that's probably fiction.
3: I'm afraid not. According to the BBC, we drink 196 million cups of tea a day, and f- enough to fill over 13,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools, and that comes out at about 3,000 tonnes of caffeine. Oh, I
7: thought <laughs> there was going to be more than that, actually.
1: Thanks for having a go, David. Okay, One out of two, not bad. Thank
0: you. See you. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. Uh, Chris, we've actually had a question here, just texted in from Alison Dawes. Um, No, in from somebody else, no name. Uh, Chris, it says, why do hairs on humans grow at different rates?
1: That's a a very good question. The reason is that uh, it's genetically patterned into us when we're developing inside our parents. Uh, As little babies, you have the body develops as a series of segments, and each of those segments inherits its own genetic programme. And in some areas, the length or the growth phase of a hair follicle is longer than in other areas. So in your eyebrows, for example, a hair grows for about a month and on the top of your head, head, a hair follicle is active for anything up to three years. And hair follicles have three phases to their life cycle. They have a growth phase, this is called the anagen phase, and it can last up to three years for a head hair, an eyelash about 21 days, a pubic hair I think is about three weeks. Uh, If you you then go through the growth phase, the next phase is what's called a catagen phase and that's where the hair falls out. And then you have what's called a resting phase or a theligum phase. And after that, it then resets back to the anagen or the growth phase again. So hairs go through these three cycles. And depending upon how long that anagen or growth phase is, that sets how long the hair can grow for and therefore how long it can become before it falls out. So where you want short hair, you have very short growth phase. And, th- and that limits the, the ultimate length.
0: Something, sorry, I I was just wondering, something I was wondering about as well is that do hairs get to kind of a maximum length and then fall out? Because a flatmate of mine actually has very, very long hair and then it falls out and you get these long hairs everywhere. It's madness. Well, in
1: essence, it does, Derry, because the the hair grows at a certain rate. We know that that fingernails and toenails and things grow, I think it's about... um, Eight, four millimetres a week, I think it is, that your your fingernails and toenails put on. Is it a week or is it, it a, month? a month? It's a month. It's a month. It's about the speed, actually, that England and America are moving apart, is the same rate at which your fingernails grow. Um, but that means that there's an ultimate limit to how long a piece of hair can get before it, it finishes its growth phase and then wants to fall out. So that's the answer. Now, look, um, uh, Steve is in Clixton. Hi- Hello, Steve. Good evening. Hello there. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like oh, to talk oh, yeah. about?
6: Yeah, thanks, Dr. Chris, yeah. Um... But um, I just wonder why pictures fade in paintings and books. If they're in the sunlight, they fade. I wonder if it's a chemical reaction or... I don't know what it is. uh, Perhaps you could enlighten me.
3: Um, Okay, basically the the colours in pictures and things are made out of chemicals. And they tend to be chemicals who interact with light quite well because they have a colour, so they'll absorb some colours and reflect others. And... So if they expose too much light, especially ultraviolet light, they'll absorb the energy from the ultraviolet light and then break and get damaged and stop being coloured anymore. OK, yeah. um, It depends what dyes you're using. Um, inorganic dyes, things made of metals, tend to survive a lot better in sunlight than organic ones.
1: But, yeah, basically the chemicals get damaged and bleached. So basically right. this, the ultraviolet radiation breaks apart the molecule that gives something its colour, and yeah. the breaking apart of that molecule means that its absorbency of light changes, and therefore its colour changes. And the same thing happens on humans, of course, with our, with our hair in summer. Uh, and you can make the process happen a little bit quicker if you put some lemon juice on. Yeah. In
6: reverse, humans go yellow... Yeah the other way around, don't they, in the
1: sun? (laughs) Well, you get a suntan, but that's because... uh, Well, the the reason you get a suntan is because ultraviolet radiation actually damages the skin. It burns the skin a bit. So in order to get a tan, you have to damage the skin. When you damage the skin, you unleash a sort of chemical cascade that culminates in the release of a hormone called MSH, or melanocyte-stimulating hormone, and that hormone makes melanocytes more active, and they put more melanin into the skin and as a result, the skin turns a darker colour because melanin is the dark brown substance that's very good at mopping up sunlight. It protects the inner layers of your skin by soaking up the sunlight.
6: Okay, on, great. great. On, thanks very much.
1: On yeah. a similar point, the reason why
3: bleaches work is that the dye molecules tend to be quite sensitive and quite easily damaged. All the bleach is something which oxidises things, just goes around and damages things at random. But the things which get damaged first tend to be the colour mo- molecules, and so things tend to go white. Do you want to quick go at the quiz,
1: Steve? Yeah, if you don't monitor, yeah. Information yeah. travels through our nervous system at about 500 miles per hour. Information travels through the nervous system at 500 miles an hour. Fact or fiction?
0: Yeah, fiction. Yes, you are absolutely correct. Large nerves conduct impulses called action potentials at between 70 and 120 metres per second, which is about 150 miles per hour.
1: Uh, cooking with gas, Steve. Next question. Worldwide, there are about 100 lightning strikes every single second. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fact, I reckon. Well
3: done. Worldwide, there are about 100 lightning strikes every second from about 1,000 thunderstorms raging at any one time, um, giving you 8 million thunderbolts every day.
1: Not bad, Steve. Two out of two. Thanks for taking part uh, in tonight's oh. Naked Scientists. Yeah, I no,
6: said, so "Don't have too long a
1: holiday, will you?" Oh, we won't. We'd we'll be away for. A... We'll be back at the beginning of September. Yep, you don't begrudge yeah, us a break, do you? Right. <laughs> yeah, thanks, night. Steve. Laying the facts bare, <gasps> the Naked Scientists. It is the Naked Scientists, Chris, Dave, and Derek, and it's our Naked Science questions and answer hour. We're answering any science question on anything this evening. You just have to call in on oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand. You can email Chris at nakedscientist.com or send us a text on oh seven seven eight six twenty nineteen sixty.
0: And if you've got if you've got a question for us, then why not also have a crack at guessing my age and my height? Because we're trying to recreate a fairly famous science experiment that was done and found that people are really very good at estimating those details about someone from their voice. So from my voice, how old am I and uh, what's my and what's my height?
1: Well so far, Derek, we've heard from Jane who's in Finningham, and she says you're forty five and five foot eight. Helen in Norwich reckons you're thirty nine and five eleven. Daniel in Sittingbourne reckons you're thirty five and five six. Uh, Sheila Anne in Royston reckons you're forty eight and five eight. Lee in Stamford says thirty five eight. Maggie in Cambridge reckons you're thirty two, so she's the youngest so far and five ten, and Charles in Walla Walla says thirty five and five eleven.
3: Now a question for you Chris um, from Charles Vigneron um, from EME, from Walla Walla in the USA sounds like she'd be in Australia
1: um, does eating chilies help with neuralgia it does not the the um actual eating of the chilies people have used chilies not well the, the thing that makes chili hot, capsaicin, which is the stuff that makes the burning sensation when you eat chili, actually is a topical ointment, something you can put on the skin if you've got various pain syndromes. And one of those, of course, is shingles. If you have had chickenpox in the past, then you have chickenpox living in your nerve fibres, in your body, for the rest of your life. And periodically, it can come back out and cause a patch of chickenpox, uh, vesicles, they're known as blisters, on one patch of skin. And after they go away, it can be tremendously painful. But researchers have found that if you apply some of this capsaicin from chili, to the painful area, it can actually help to relieve the pain possibly because pain is mediated or or conveyed in the nervous system by a class of nerve fibres referred to as C fibres they're very very tiny nerve fibres and capsaicin activates those nerve fibres and activates them in some cases to death so what we think is happening is that it's actually switching off the nerve fibres indirectly and making them less sensitive and that's why the pain goes away who knows, but uh, Lee is in Stanford hello Lee, Hello. thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist, what would you like to talk about?
4: Um, well,
6: I, I was wondering what the difference was between hydration and water retention. Um, I know that we need to be hydrated and we don't want to have water retention, but mm. what is actually happening in the tissues?
1: Right. Your body is about 60-plus uh, percent water and that's because we're made of cells and cells are quite literally bags of water they've got an oily membrane that encloses water and also on the outside of that membrane washing around our tissues and cells is water so the human body is just a massive mobile bag of water so the average 70 kilogram person has got at least 40 kilos just of water. So if I could put you in a giant juicer and squeeze all the juice out I I would get at least 40 kilos of water from the average 70 kilo person. So a lot of water in the body. That water exists in an equilibrium between how much is in the blood vessels, how much is surrounding our cells and how much is in the cells. And your body knows how much water it's got on board because it measures things like how much salt is dissolved in the bloodstream. So it can work out when there's too little or too much water. Your kidneys do that and they then secrete various hormones or regulate how much salt is shed from the body and therefore how much water is lost to keep you in balance. So when you get water retention, there are various reasons why that can happen, but something encourages your kidneys to keep more water back when it would normally put it into the urine and this increases the total amount of water in the body and when you get a little bit too much water in the body it starts to spread amongst the tissues and it starts to surround the cells in your legs usually in what's called dependent edema. So it goes to the, the lowest point in the body under gravity and that's why people get Get puffy legs and, and that's water retention it can be caused by a number of things including kidney problems heart problems but much more normally just in hot weather people who who take on a little bit too much water in hot weather to sort of rehydrate and then it partitions out into various places in the body so hot weather being pregnant and sometimes being a bit menstrual can do that too okay thank you very much that's all right do you want a quick go at the quiz Oh, all right. <laughs> if you fell from the top of the world's tallest building it would take you 10 seconds to hit the ground. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Or
0: fact? You are absolutely right. Um, If you fell from the Taipei 101 building in Taiwan, which is 508 metres high, then you'd reach a terminal velocity of 55.6 metres a second and you would indeed hit the ground, very unfortunately, after 10 seconds.
1: That's actually long enough to make a phone call if you've got someone on speed dial and and say, hey, um, actually I've fallen off a building, I'm going to need an ambulance. No, make that an undertaker. <laughs> next question, an anteater can eat up to 30,000 ants in a day. True or falsely? Oh, yes. Yes, that's true, I think. <laughs> yes, indeed, an anteater can eat 30,000
3: ants in a day, which is quite... Cons- Quite useful, considering that there's only there's over two, 750 billion tonnes of ants alive on the Earth at one time. That's scary.
1: It's also quite useful, considering that uh, ants probably don't contain that many calories, do they? But, Lee, thank you very much for taking part, and uh, uh, you've done very well. Two out of two. OK, thanks very much. Bye. The Naked Scientists: Chris, Dave and Derek, and we're taking your science questions. All you have to do is call in on oh eight four five 2000, email chris at com, or send us a text on 07786 20
0: and also, if you fancy having a go at guessing my age and height, then uh, please do so. Please call in or email in and, uh, and have a go just from listening to my voice. How old and, uh, and how high am I? And uh, th- th- we've had lots of answers so far, but no one has got it right yet, so there's still prizes up for grabs.
1: In fact, they're not even really close with the age, are they?
0: We're, we're trying to be neutral about it, but let's face it, no one's really got very close. So, yeah, come on, guys. We want a fresh approach to this. How old am I? How high am I?
1: fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed <laughs> on your way to work or even at work why not subscribe to our podcast for more information visit nakedscientist.com forward slash
0: podcast Okay, well, it's time for this week's Kitchen Science. And uh, this week, Dave and I went out and did something really very bizarre, but it was actually inspired by some questions that came into the show from you guys, the listeners, and we're very, very grateful for those. We were investigating about England flags that are hung up on people's cars because it turns out they cost the nation quite a lot of money in a way you might not expect. So let's listen to the experiment that we did this week. For fans of the England football team, this summer began with great promise. But at the beginning of July, that all went horribly wrong. That's right. Now, for people like me who followed the England team, it was a pretty disappointing feeling when England finally went out of the World Cup. I felt my energy had been sapped and my patience had been sorely tried and, well, frankly, I could go on and on. But the thing is, here on The Naked Scientist, we've had a lot of questions from people who think that that's not the only way the England team cost us. So, right now, I'm actually in a car park on the outskirts of Cambridge with Dave and also Dave's car and we're going to be testing something. What is it we're going to be testing, Dave? Well,
3: everyone keeps asking, how much does it cost to put an England flag on your car? How much it costs you in
0: petrol just driving
3: around? OK,
0: and exa- you know, why would it cost you extra petrol, do you
3: think? Well, adding a great big lump sticking outside your car is going to increase the drag of your car. You put a big floppy strap flag on the side, it's going to slow the car down. So the question is, how much drag is it going to produce? OK, so what's the apparatus we've got set up here, then? Well, it's a very high-tech piece of apparatus. Basically, it involves a stick, a flag, which I got for 10p from co-op after England got knocked out,
0: and a spring balance. So, yeah, what Dave's got, basically, is a long wooden pole. Uh, it's quite thin, and it's about, what, a metre long, isn't it? And also, tied to the end of that is one of these little England flags. So, basically, it's kind of like an England flag with a big flagpole on it. And, uh, and there's also kind of a pivot. What's the pivot for? Well, the idea is that the England flag's going to get pulled back.
3: Um, someone holds onto the screwdriver, which is acting a pivot, and it will pull the f- um, pole forwards. Now, if we just hold onto the string balance attached to the pole, we will able to measure how hard it's being
0: pulled forwards. So basically, the-, the pivot is kind of very, very close to the top of the flag, where the flag is actually going to hang out of the car. And so if you can imagine the wind rushing past the flag in one direction, it's going to pull the rest of the flagpole round, uh, with that pivot kind of acting as a fulcrum. And then on the other side of that pivot, we've actually got a force meter. Just describe that meter quickly
3: just one of the little spring balances which you probably used at school to weigh things with
0: yeah okay so it's like it's got a little hook on the end and it's got a spring in it and also some kind of markings along the side so you can see how many units of force you're actually using up and of course a unit of force is the newton derrick okay so we're going to be finding out how much how many newtons and therefore hopefully how much petrol these england flags hanging out of the windows have been costing us so all right then we're ready what's the plan Well, basically, we're going to get into my car, I'm going to give you the piece
3: of kit, because I've got to drive, and we're going to measure how much force it takes to pull a flag through the air.
0: Fantastic. All right, let's do it. All right, then, so we're on the A505 near Duxford, and uh, Dave's driving his car, I'm sat in the back, and our esteemed producer has actually come along to help hold this contraption together as well. Dave, how fast are we going? We're about 40 miles an hour now, Derek. Now, I'm, I'm looking at the force meter. We've fixed it on the other side of this pole, so the flag, you can hear it. It's uh, fluttering out of the window there, and I can read a force of 1.75 newtons, okay? And that's at 40 miles an hour, but I think what we want to do now is try and get it a bit quicker. So what's the plan, Dave? Um, we're going to turn around and head on to the M11 and see how fast we can go. Okay, and see how fast this banger goes. Fantastic. Okay, here we go for the M11. Okay, so we're on the M11. How fast are we going, Dave? About 70 miles an hour. Okay, and how's the car holding out? Just about okay. All right, so we're going about 70 miles an hour. We are legal here on The Naked Scientist, and the flag is out there. It's bending on the plastic pole, bending like hell. And uh, we've actually got the force meter. It's much further down the pole because the uh, the force is so great. We've actually got to make it quite hard to put a measurement on this force meter. So the the length on the inside of the car, on, on the other side of the pole, is three times what it is on the flag side. Anyway, looking at the, uh, the force meter, we've got... Well, it's shaking all over the place, but I think it's, it's kind of averaging out at something like 2.25 newtons. And so, because we've actually got the, uh, the length of the flagpole on the inside of the car is three times the, uh, the, the length on the outside, that means we've got to multiply that force by three to actually get the real force which is being exerted on the flag on the outside of the car so i think quick calculation in my head so that's about 6.75 newtons so there you go doing uh cruising down the motorway at 70 miles an hour that's what you get we're going to go and find somewhere to park and work out what all of this means in the meantime let's get the flag in before the cops think something weird's going on So we're back in uh, a car park just on the outskirts of Cambridge. We're near Trumpington, and uh, we've just been on our drive. We've measured the force that was on the flag at 40 miles an hour and then then at 70 miles an hour. And Dave here has the back of an envelope, no less. He's come prepared, this man, and so he's been working out exactly how much energy and therefore how much fuel and so on it's been costing us. So, Dave, what have you worked out?
3: Power is basically force times speed. So at 40 miles an hour, you're doing 18 metres per second, and there was about 3.5 newtons on the flag. So that comes out about 63 watts, so about the same as running an extra light bulb for no particularly good reason. Now, a car's about only 30% efficient, so you've got to multiply that by about three, gives you the amount of power in petrol you're using, so about 135 watts in petrol. So that comes out
0: about 0.7 megajoules per hour. Okay, so this is the amount of extra energy that your car is using for every hour that it's got the flag at 40 miles an hour, okay. And petrol's got about 32 megajoules per litre in
3: it. And petrol's at a pound a litre, so it comes out about 2p per hour that you should spend at 40 miles an hour.
0: So every car per hour that it has a flag running outside of it at 40 miles an hour spends an extra 2p an hour, which may not sound like much, but there's more to this story. Okay, at 70 miles an hour then, what have we got there with the same sort of equation?
3: Well, at 70 miles an hour, you're doing 31 metres per second, and it was 6.75 newtons rather than 3, and that comes out about 8p an hour.
0: And of course, we've got to remember that a lot of people, well, anyone who had these flags generally had two on their car, so actually... So it's actually about 16p an hour per car, or uh, about 1.2 kilowatts of energy. Now then, what, of course, we want to know is, of course, that, that's the cost per car, and people may think, oh, well, that's not very much. But in terms of the whole nation, you know, the, obviously the England football team, they cost the whole nation loads and loads of stuff. Did they, how much did they cost them in energy as well, and, and in cost? Well, um, people drive about 6,000 miles a year on average. So for a month with
3: people wearing the flags, so maybe 500 miles they drove. And that's about 10 hours of driving at 70 miles an hour, roughly. So about pound sixty per car. Say there's 20 million cars in the country, maybe a tenth of them had flags on. So that's 2 million cars. So about £3.2 million.
0: That, can you believe it? There you go. We've, done, we've made some estimates there, um, but basically that all comes down to... million pounds in fuel being wasted by simply having these flags on there so there we go dave what do we reckon about having flags on your car possibly okay if you're going slowly but doing 70 miles an hour pretty wasteful exactly so you might as well take them off if you're going quickly or better still just don't bother because we know there's no point in bothering supporting the england team anymore so there we go all right well thanks for working all of that out dave and uh, that's all from here in a car park with some crazy apparatus in tram goodbye from us
1: I've got to ask you guys, did you get some funny looks driving around with an England flag out the window now?
0: We, we were being overtaken by a fair few lorry drivers who uh, <laughs> were wondering what on earth was going on. But, um, you know, to be fair, I think, the, the, you know, the England thing hasn't really died down yet, it seems.
1: But the interesting thing, you estimated 2 million cars. According to The Guardian over the summer, the number of them being driven around uh, the country was 10 million, which means actually you might have to multiply your amount of uh, fuel, your 3 million pounds, might have to go up by a factor of 5. 15 million! <laughs> Pounds of wasted fuel. Gordon Brown must be rubbing his hands together because 90% of that is going to be tax. It's the Naked Scientists. It's Chris, Dave, and Derek. And if you'd like to ask us any science questions for our Naked Science science phone-in this evening, 08459 25 nine twenty five two thousand. Email Chris at NakedScientist.com or text oh seven seven eight six twenty nineteen sixty.
0: And we're still taking your calls as to my age and my height. So please tell me how old do you think I am and how tall.
1: The Naked Scientist, Chris, Dave and Derek, got a, an email here for you, uh, Dave, which is from Rob McDonald, and he says, Hi, I'm listening to your latest podcast on the train on my way back from work and a question has occurred to me regarding UV rays. If it's ultraviolet light that causes skin cancer and there are UV lights in discos and butchers, of course, are they dangerous? If not, how come? Great show, by the way. Rob, say, somewhere between Leeds and Huddersfield on a sweaty train.
3: Well, how dangerous UV light is actually depends what kind of UV light it is. Uh, If it's got a very long wavelength, quite close to visible light, then it's not much worse than blue light. If it's got a very short wavelength, once it's getting beyond that, it starts getting more and more dangerous and closer to x-rays. And stuff in um, bakers and um, in discos is mostly nearer the, it's actually called UVA, the closest to blue light, so it's probably not too bad for you.
1: Now, a uh, quick question here from Stephen Rigney, who's in Picton, Australia. I just wanted to know why a soft drink can doesn't get shaken up when you buy a can and it falls from the inner workings. It falls very hard, but when you open the can straight away, it won't overflow. Why do you think this happens? Um, I think the reason for this is that when it drops, it tends to drop on its side.
3: So when the liquid hits the bottom, it sort of swirls. Spins around like so much a much of the machine. energy gets yeah. it moved into swirling it, and that doesn't produce much turbulence. So it doesn't get many bubbles into the liquid, and so it doesn't fizz.
1: Now, most people will be aware that that Jupiter, the the giant planet now in our solar system, has a giant red spot, and we've actually known about this for some 300 years or so. But what actually is it, and why has another one, which has been uh, nicely named Red Spot Junior, appeared more recently? Well, I asked University College London's Professor Steve Miller to tell me all about it.
4: Jupiter's a very large planet. It's got a diameter of about 140,000 kilometres compared with something like 13,000 kilometres for the Earth, and it also spins a great deal faster than the Earth does, roughly two and a half times as fast, because a Jupiter day is less than 10 hours, and our day, as we all know, is 24 hours. So this is a, a huge, rapidly spinning ball of gas, something like five times as far away from the Sun as we are. Now, the Great Red Spot is a very large storm system on Jupiter. You could fit the entire Earth into it. And it's at a a latitude of about 22, 23 degrees south of the Jupiter equator. And that has been known probably for 350 years. And the storm is probably quite a bit older than that. Steve,
1: how do we know it's a storm, though?
4: we can see that there are clouds at the northern and southern edges of it that are simply being swept around in a circle, and some wind speeds go up to uh, about 600 miles an hour. So you, you can tell that this thing must be spinning really very rapidly.
1: Why is there just this one megastorm system? Is it, is it just that it's so powerful that it, it draws everything else into it?
4: Well, that indeed is how it might have formed. I mean, it's very, very likely that it's formed up from a lot of smaller storms merging and then creating this enormous structure. We do know that it's changing. Um, It's now something like 17,000 kilometres in the sort of the west-east direction and 12,500 kilometres north-south. When it was really catalogued in the 1880s, it was something like 39,000 kilometres east-west. So we can see that in you know, the past 125 years, the, the storm has shrunk in size, so it is changing. But it is almost certain that it formed from the merger of a lot of smaller storms.
1: Because we've got some evidence that that is indeed happening on Jupiter, haven't we, in in the wake of the, the sort of giant red spot, Junior, which has cropped up in more recent years.
4: Yes, that's right. I mean, that's a storm that's a bit to the south of the great red spot. And this is a storm that has resulted from the merger about five years ago of three smaller storms that basically caught each other up and then merged into one. It's really quite big. I mean, it's it's about 40% of the size of the Great Red Spot. So Red Spot Junior may be junior, but it's still pretty massive.
1: Do you know why it's red, though?
4: Difficult question. The most likely theory is that when the three storms that formed Red Spot Junior merged together, they became much more violent as one combined storm this has had the effect of bringing material up from Jupiter's lower atmosphere, higher up into the atmosphere. Now, it's probable that this Jupiter air has got quite high concentrations or relatively high concentrations of phosphorus compounds or sulfur compounds or something like that, and that bringing it up higher into the atmosphere has allowed sunlight to cause chemical reactions to occur that has turned the colour red. So it's giving us an insight, but we still have no idea what the actual chemical compound that gives the great red spot and now red spot jr it's red color we just don't know what that is
1: steve i have an email from richard wood who's in columbus in ohio and he'd like to ask a couple of questions about jupiter and he says first of all why do storms such as the great red spot not have eyes like hurricanes on the earth do
4: well i think it's just a question of how big they are the funnel on the great red spot and red spot jr are so much huger in size, so that they don't give you the impression of, of an eye in the same way as a hurricane does. But then if you sort of distance yourself a bit from them, you can actually imagine that you are looking at an eye. So it, there is a sort of eye, but it's just so much greater than anything that we ever see on Earth.
1: Richard goes on to ask, um, why is it that these Jovian storms don't migrate towards the poles, i.e. away from the equator, like hurricanes on Earth seem to do?
4: Well, this is due to something that we call the Coriolis force and the Coriolis force will tend to keep things rotating in the same latitudes. We have Coriolis forces on Earth, but because Earth is much smaller and is rotating much slower than Jupiter is, they're not so effective, so you do get winds that move north-south on the Earth. It's very difficult to get winds to move north-south on Jupiter, simply because the Coriolis force will always tend to bend anything that is moving either north or south. It will tend to then move it again in an east-west direction. That's why Jupiter has these very stable light-coloured zones, these dark-coloured belts on the Jupiter atmosphere. And they remain very stable because they're held in place, if you like, by these uh, Coriolis forces.
1: With the lowdown on what's happening with the solar system's biggest planet, Jupiter, of course, that was UCL's Professor Steve Miller. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. It is the Naked Scientists, Chris, Derek and Dave, and in fact it's the end of the series because we won't be here for a month or so. We'll be back at the beginning of September, which will also be the launch of the BA, not the British Airways, the British Association for the Advancement of Science Festival at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, because it's the UK's foremost science festival and it's coming to our region. And we're going to be there in full force to support it and we'll be telling you what to look forward to on our special show starting the Sunday right before. So stay tuned for that one. But Derek, we've had quite a few guesses at what you actually look like and uh, and how tall you are. I mean, it's ranged from age, what, 45, 48, 32, 35, and people estimating between 5'11 and sort of 5'6".
0: Yes, no, I, well, I've been quite nervous to hear it all. But, uh, well, I can now reveal the actual details of my, my height and my age. I am, in fact, younger than all of those, and I think maybe younger than anyone guessed. I'm actually 27. Believe it or not, I'm a fresh faced young lad and I'm five foot ten. And I think somebody did get very, very close though, is that right? Helen in Norwich reckons you were twenty-eight and she put your height at five foot ten. Yeah, so basically you're one year out, Helen, but otherwise that's absolutely fantastic. So what I'm wondering is, do you know me? Because everyone else was miles out. But now we've now we've done that
1: and we've found that um, actually someone can get it right, but on average there was a bit of a skew with our study. But when the scientists did this, did they find largely that result, Derek, or did it work?
0: No, it did actually work. I mean the thing is I'm working in radio, and so I suppose you know my voice is chosen because it's maybe a bit deeper than other people's voices, and so maybe that's kind of affected people's thinking of you know, how old I am. But the thing is, when the scientists did this, this was actually done at Columbia University in New York by Robert Krauss and his colleagues, and basically they found that if they showed someone a picture or played someone a voice of the same person, that uh, if people made a judgment about age and height from the voice, it was practically as good as them using the picture. So from kind of a visual cue, that was, almost, that was just about the same as using the speech cue.
1: So what this suggests then is that at the moment when someone makes threatening phone calls or drops a bomb and says there's going to be a bomb or whatever somewhere and people hire very expensive experts to come and analyse voices, actually you could do it cheaper by asking the radio listeners, to so what do you think of this voice?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, if I choose to do something like that, then you know they're never going to guess who I am, which is wonderful. But yeah, that's Perfectly, definitely We know what
1: can. If you ever need a new career, Derek, you can take up a job as sort of threatening phone call maker or something.
0: <laughs> Not something I'd call a career, but you know, a one-off maybe.
1: Nigel's in he... Nigel's in Rutland. Hello, Nigel.
0: Hello. Well, I'm out, sorry, I'm from Rutland,
1: but I'm in Suffolk at the moment. Right. Okay. And uh, um, what do you want to talk about?
6: Well, you were talking about the flags on the cars, and I—I I mean, I've one never had one on because of. Um, spending so much time on the motorway it would have blown off in seconds um but i did have a flag in the back which was obviously inside on my vehicle i noticed that if you put the air con on and keep the air con on on the car rather than having the windows open it makes quite a big difference to the fuel consumption it seems to be better with the air con than actually having the windows open
1: do you normally drive fast though nigel and what's your Uh, average speed so are you spending a lot of time doing a lot of high speeds
6: i do about Thirty to 40,000 miles on the on the motorways in the MPV diesel, and I get about 50 if I sit at 70. If you push it above 70, then it drops quite dramatically, but sure. it does about 50 miles to the gallon if you're doing 70, and that's with the aircon on.
1: Yeah. The, then you have completely proved exactly what physicists say, which is that at high speed, 70 miles an hour, it's much better to use the aircon and keep the windows closed, but at 40 miles an hour, it's much more efficient to have the aircon off and keep the windows open. Would you concur, Dave? Yeah. Sounds about right. Right. You get more air resistance faster, yeah. So it's, it's all down to air resistance.
6: Yeah, so that's right. Well, I've had this argument before with people, and they said, no, no, you shouldn't have the air cut on, and I said, no, it's a lot better if you do have it on and you don't have the windows
1: open. I mean, of course, the way air conditioning works, it's like having a very powerful fridge under the bonnet of your car. It uh, takes energy from the engine to drive this fridge, if you like, and then it blows air from outside over the fridge element and delivers it to the inside of the car. So you're you're not getting something for nothing. It is taking energy from the engine. So if you want to be the most efficient you possibly can, then you'll just sweat it out, although you won't, won't necessarily be in the best possible state when you arrive you're going uh, but at, at low speeds definitely windows down aircon off it uh, works out most fuel efficient all right thanks very much quick go at the quiz uh, sorry no i didn't hear that <laughs> i said did you want a quick go at the quiz y- yeah
6: i didn't hear the question on it sorry
1: that's all right i'll ask it to you now in britain we eat about a quarter of a million eggs every single day do you think that's science fact or science fiction
0: i would say that's actually fiction Yes, you're right. We actually get through a hefty 30 million hen- hen's eggs daily, which is about one per two people in the population.
1: An ant weighs about one gram, Nigel. Uh, fact or fiction?
0: Uh,
6: fiction.
1: Well done. Uh, one gram would be one hell of an ant. Um,
3: actually, normal ants are about 400 times lighter than that, about two and a half milligrams.
1: Thank you, Nigel. Uh, two out of two, and a great question. Good to have you on the show. It's Chris, Dave and Derek and this is The Naked Scientist and if you want to ask us any questions, got a few minutes left, you can squeeze your question in 08459 2000, it's a phone number, email chris at nakedscientist.com or send us any texts 07786 20 1960. Uh, Dave, got a question here from Sam who says, I'm from Slovakia and I'd like to inform you, your programme is spreading amongst Slovak youth, or at least I've persuaded some of my friends to listen to it. I have to tell you, I enjoy this programme, especially while I am going for a walk uh, with my dog. I'm a law student but I haven't lost interest in nature and all the marvel around us. Um, I have a question. I was always fascinated at the state of weightlessness and how it works. A month ago, I saw a report on artificial simulations of of the phenomenon on CNN, uh, in which people were in a plane and became weightless. How is it possible to nullify gravity in this way? Is the question of zero acceleration or something like that, is that how it works? The satellite orbiting the Earth is held on its path because of gravitational pull, and we experience a state of weightlessness. Yet, how is this achieved? Well, weightlessness
3: doesn't actually mean there's no gravity. All it means is that everything around you is falling at the same speed as you. So, if you're in a lift that was falling at, g- accelerating at g towards the ground, it, you'd feel like you're weightless. Um, and so, the way they, when uh, basically a satellite is just falling all the time, it just misses every time it goes around the Earth. Um, so the way they do it in planes is they basically make the plane fly on a parabola They shoot it up and then they make it they accelerate towards the ground At the, at the same rate as, as you would do falling So the plane's falling at the same speed as you So you feel like you're weightless So it's all a question of relative falling, Acceleration basically. It's <laughs> There's
1: right a there. very quick question here from Ryan Felix though Who says, can we play the Derek game, as it's now known, with you um, He reckons I'm 5'8 and I have short curly hair and I'm about 45
0: <laughs> <laughs> Does he know you? <laughs>
1: Shall I, shall I what, what do you think, Dave? I mean, the last sort of 30 seconds we've got. I mean, what, what would you, just on the basis of my voice. <laughs> i
0: <I'm> supposed <laughs> to be sitting in front of you, Dave. Close your eyes, Dave, and make a guess. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Chris, I reckon you're in your 30s, <laughs> and uh, you've got glasses on, so I don't know.
1: Maybe blondish hair? No, okay. I will describe myself. I'm actually 31, um, and I am 5 foot 8, so he wasn't far off there, but then, you know, a lot of men in this country are, uh, but I'm certainly not 45 years old, good grief. And my hair's straight, it's not curly. Anyway, this has been The Naked Scientist, and also, that's it for this series, because we're now stopping for one month over the summer, and we'll be returning at the beginning of September with a new series of The Naked Scientist. If, in the meantime, you have any particular questions, feedback or ideas for topics and programs in the new series, then do send them to me, chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, if you appreciate The Naked Scientist, then one thing we'd really be grateful for is your support in this year's podcast awards. If you visit the nakedscientist.com website on our front page, you'll see a link to the awards And we need your votes because we're up against four tremendous other shows and the only way we're going to win is with as many votes as we can muster. So if you could pay a visit to either podcastawards.com or visit the site via NakedScientist.com and scroll down to the bottom left. You'll see that we're one of the five nominated programmes and we'd be really grateful for all the help you can give us in terms of as many votes as we can drum up. In the meantime, have a great summer for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. Have a great winter for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere. And please keep your emails coming in to Chris at NakedScientist.com in preparation for the new series in September. Thanks very much for listening and see you soon.